Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon and welcome to the Institute for Government. So we've had Super Thursday and it is now Manic Monday as the many ramifications of last week's election results begin to work their way through the system. In Scotland, of course, the big, big issue is, of course, independence. Parties in favour of independence won a record 72 out of 129 seats, almost exactly half the vote as well. And First Minister Nicola Sturgeon is now pushing her case for a second referendum to be permitted by legislation passed at Westminster. In Wales, Labour defied expectations and performed very well. They've secured a sixth consecutive term of office in Cardiff, winning precisely half the 60 seats in Seneth Cymru, the Welsh Parliament. In England, the early news was all about the Conservative victory in Hartlepool and gains the party made in other parts of the Red Wall, in the Northeast, the Midlands, Essex and elsewhere. But Labour had some reasons for celebration as well, with victories for the party's mayoral candidates in London, Greater Manchester, Liverpool, West Yorkshire and elsewhere. So there's a lot to take in and plenty of competing narratives for us to try and make sense of. My name is Akash Brown, and I am really pleased to be chairing this discussion of those elections, what happened and what happens next. And we have an excellent panel to talk us through all these questions. So first of all, delighted to welcome Kieran Andrews, who is a Scottish political editor at The Times. Kieran, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, second, uh, joining us from Cardiff, or at least from the University of Cardiff, is Professor Laura McAllister, Professor of Public Policy at the Wales Governance Centre. Laura, nice to see you. Thanks for joining us again. Nice to see you too. Um, third, great to have with us Professor Tony Travers, Professor in Practice in the Department of Government at the London School of Economics. Tony, thanks for joining us. Good afternoon, and Pananda. <laughs> and finally, very pleased to be joined by my colleague, Jess Sargent, Senior Researcher at the Institute for Government and fellow member of IFG Team Devo. Jess, good to see you. Hello. Great. So I'll be putting a series of questions to the panel. Broadly, we'll start with Scotland, then we'll talk about Wales, and then we will talk about England. I also hope to speak a bit about the UK government response and its strategy, if it has one, for the union. And very keen to take questions from the audience. So anyone who's watching live, please do suggest questions for our panel using the Q&A function on Teams. Okay, so that's enough for me. Let's get started. Kieran, I uh, want to start with you um, and just to talk through what's happened, what is still happening now in, in Scotland. Nicola Sturgeon has said that in light of the results, a second independence referendum is a matter of when, not if. Is that how it seems to you as well? Well, we've had six weeks in Scotland of campaigning, three days of voting and vote counting. And we've ended up with a parliament that, when it comes down to it, is actually very, very similar to the one that, that was left. The SNP are the dominant party. It was a very good, very impressive election result for the SNP putting on a seat. But they're still short of a majority. But there is a pro-independence majority when the Scottish Greens are included. So that pro-independence majority has increased slightly. But broadly, the, the maths is still the same. So that still leaves us in a, in a kind of holding pattern where Nicola Sturgeon says that that victory means that she has the, the right, the authority to, to hold a second independence referendum, but with powers over the constitution reserved to Westminster, the UK government is effectively saying, and it's interesting how their language has changed on this, is effectively saying, not now, we're in the middle of a pandemic and, and there will not be a referendum in the immediate future. How long that holds, um, particularly as restrictions loosen and we return to something approaching normal, remains to be seen. 
Well, it's interesting you, you mentioned the perhaps bit of a shift in tone from the UK government. I mean, Nicola Sturgeon herself has said that a referendum would be a matter for the period after pa the pandemic. Um, in some sense, she kind of shifted her, her, her line on, on how soon that might take. So might there be a bit of a, a convergence between the governments on that issue? Is that what you're suggesting? Well, it, it's more that the UK government is currently basing its, its opposition and its refusal to engage with the question of the transfer of powers to Holyrood on the basis that there's a, there's a good chunk of people in Scotland, including a, a reasonable chunk of people who voted for the SNP, who are not clamouring for a referendum at the moment. There was a really interesting Times Radio focus group last week of, of soft SNP voters who had voted no in 2014 are now supporting the SNP, who said that they were doing so because they thought Nicola Sturgeon had done a great job during the pandemic and was the best person to lead uh, the Scottish Government out the back of the pandemic. But they were they were horrified at the prospect of, of that government immediately turning its focus towards independence. And the only thing that horrified them more than that was the prospect of Boris Johnson saying, absolutely not, you can never hold another referendum. So that is the, these kind of people, middle Scotland, I think, as Gordon Brown put it today, holds the key to whether or not there is a referendum. Because if the tide of public opinion shifts towards a second referendum, perhaps at the back end of the parliament, Nicola Sturgeon won't be too bothered when a referendum takes place. In fact, there's a lot of work that Scottish government, the SNP, needs to do on fleshing out the case for independence. She just wants one within the next five, year, next five years, the term of this parliament. So if it takes a bit longer and they have to wait for Scottish public opinion to change, they'll be quite comfortable with that. The challenge for the UK government just now is to try and prove the value of the union, prove its worth in Scotland to try and stop that shift. It would make it very, very difficult to, to hold back the kind of momentum towards a referendum. Yeah, so for now, the, the, a lot of the argument is about should the Scottish Parliament have the right to decide whether and when a referendum takes place rather than um, a kind of push for, for an immediate referendum. And in terms of the, the strength of the SNP argument, so as, as you mentioned, um, the party very narrowly by a single seat missed out on the overall majority, but with the eight Greens, there's a pretty decisive pro-independence majority. Do you think it matters at all in terms of the, the strength of the SNP case that they did miss out on, on that threshold of 65 seats? Certainly, one of, we've heard some, some unionist politicians already saying that that was a significant factor. How do you see it? Well, of course, in 2011, when David Cameron agreed to a second referendum, it was because the SNP had won a majority, and that has been held up, rightly or wrongly, that has been held up as the gold standard, I suppose, the, the, the thing to aim for that puts beyond doubt a mandate for a second independence referendum. And there's no doubt that the UK government would have been finding it much, much harder to argue against against the principle of there being a second independence referendum at some point during this parliamentary term had the SNP got that crucial one extra seat and be sitting with the majority at Holyrood. Again, though, it, it does it does come down to, to public opinion. For as long as people in Scotland, as long as polling and research, and the UK government's doing a lot of research, and the Scottish government will be doing research, the SNP will be doing internal research as well. As long as there's a substantial number of people who don't want a referendum in the near future, then the UK government will feel they can keep kicking this can down the road. Yeah, so as you mentioned, there's that, that Middle Scotland uh, group who perhaps are sympathetic to the idea that this should be an issue for Scotland to, to decide, but are definitely not um, urgently looking for that to happen. So. As far as the, the election was concerned, I mean, I think from a, from a London perspective or the, the, from the media narrative, it did often feel like independence was the only issue. Um, that was the big issue that, that everyone was talking about. But you followed the campaign closely. People, people obviously do vote for political parties and for incumbent governments for all sorts of reasons. Um, how much of it was just about the, the constitutional question? How much uh, was it about domestic 
policy questions, performance in dealing with the pandemic and so on. Well, you saw a real shift in tone from Nicola Sturgeon during the campaign, moving very much towards presenting herself as the, the steady hand on the tower to steer Scotland, steer the Scottish Government through the recovery phase of the pandemic. Um, and and it was it was very much a pandemic election. There's there's no way of getting round that. The SNP's campaign adverts that they were pushing on social media in the final few days were of the, something that looked very much like the podium that the First Minister has stood at almost every day, delivering COVID-19 briefings and updates on the BBC. So it would be disingenuous to say that incumbency and the pandemic didn't play a big part in the election. But it would also be disingenuous to say that independence didn't hang over every single thing that was going on. You know, for all you could say quite fairly, the SNP stepped back from putting independence front and centre and made clear that they, you know, they, in their first 100 days of the new parliament roadmap, that they would not be going near the constitutional question and, and you know, majored on the pandemic. You only had to look at the opposition, particularly the Scottish Conservatives, who made sure it was front and centre of every single thing that, that they did, um, saying stopping an SNP majority stops a second independence referendum. So there was definitely, independence was definitely a major factor in the campaign. It kind of hung over everything, but it was by no means the only thing that people were voting on. And, and I think it'll be fascinating to wait and see what the kind of the academic post-match analysis, as it were, uh, of this is, to see exactly what influenced voters uh, as they went into the, the polling stations in record numbers in Scotland on Thursday. Yeah, yeah, the turnout was an interesting one. I'm sure there'll be plenty of that academic analysis. We'll be looking out for that too. Jess, uh, I want to come to you now. Um, so, I mean, as Kieran just mentioned, the SNP uh, published its roadmap to a referendum a few months ago, giving us a sense of, of their strategy in, in this exact scenario. Um, what do you expect to, to see happen next? I guess some of the initial moves have already been made, but what, what do you think the Scottish government is actually going to do to, to try and get uh, what it wants? And, and how do you expect the UK government to respond? Yeah, so I think the first step in the process is for the First Minister to, to request the power to hold the second independence referendum, that transfer of power we spoke um, about earlier, known as the Section 30 order. I don't know exactly when that will be, because um, as we mentioned, Nicola Sturgeon has been very clear that she'll only press ahead with independence after the pandemic. So it might be that in contrast to post-2019 general election, when the uh, First Minister requested very soon after that um, uh, the power to hold a referendum based on, on that electoral mandate, we might actually see a bigger gap. Um, and I don't think we know for sure exactly what the UK's government response will be. Um, we've seen Michael Gove on the broadcasting round kind of very much avoiding the question, really. Um, and like the First Minister, emphasising the importance of dealing with the pandemic first. It is possible that the UK government could continue to just say no, as it has been doing so far. But I think there is a risk that if it looks like it's blocking the kind of will of the Scottish people and undermining this idea of the union based on consent, um, that actually there's a risk that that in itself could increase support um, for independence. So I think the UK government does need to weigh up the various scenarios here. But what we do know is that if Westminster doesn't agree to a Section 30 order, um, the SNP do plan to introduce their independence referendum bill into the Scottish Parliament. Um, so the legal question of whether the Scottish Parliament has the power to hold a referendum has never actually been tested in court. But I think if the SNP introduced this bill, it's very likely that it would be that the UK government would challenge that. The prevailing legal opinion is that it would likely be struck down. Um, so the UK government would likely kind of win that case. But even if it wasn't, the option is always open for the UK Parliament to legislate to make it crystal clear that independence and an independence referendum was a reserved matter. So there are a lot of kind of legal obstacles in the Scottish government's way there. But actually, as often is the case with the UK constitution, it's also the politics that matters. And I certainly do think the election results will have strengthened the Scottish government's case that it should be able to hold that independence referendum. Yeah, thanks. Um, and yeah, if we do end up in the Supreme Court, the, the legal test will be, does a bill for independence referendum relate to the Union of Scotland and England? And 
obviously far be it from, from us to, to prejudge the Supreme Court, but it does strike me as difficult uh, to argue that such a bill does not relate to, um, to, to the union. Um, so there may be an uphill struggle for the SNP if that's where we end up. Okay, um, Tony, I want to bring in you now. We're going to come on to, to, to England in a few moments or a few minutes as as mentioned. But on, on this question, um, what do you make of the, the UK government um, response or indeed how, how it's been approaching the union more generally in, in recent months and years? Does, does it have a coherent strategy? What, 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 is it, what do you make of it? I'm not sure it had a, uh, a particularly coherent strategy until relatively recently. But one thing that's become clear is that the UK government is now going to spend a large amount of money in Scotland. I mean, on visible projects, my guess is a lot of them will have union flags on them. Um, and this is going to be a way of trying to demonstrate, as they, the government's been making clear with the vaccine rollout, even though that's been done separately in Scotland and Wales, England and in Northern Ireland, but to make the point that uh, these things are done better together. And the government was immediately on the front foot on this over the weekend while Labour was having its struggles on other subjects. Um, and I think, therefore, we'll see a determined effort with government occasionally, you know, government departments moving to Glasgow and Edinburgh, ministers being present there, money being spent on projects. And so I think they are now active and are going to spend uh, uh, far more time from now on on this subject than they did perhaps a year or more ago. Yes, yeah, so we've we've already seen some signs of that strategy, as you say, the, the announcement of how the, the levelling up fund will work, the plans shared prosperity funds. Um, these are going to be funds, aren't they, whereby the UK government spends money directly on projects and in communities all across the UK. Yeah, and it's, a, it's an amazing, in some ways, uh, it's a, a curiosity of Brexit that it's led to you know, it might have happened anyway, but this sense that the UK government is now going to become activist in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland again, kind of overriding the settlement of 1999. Uh, and it, it's definitely a greater degree of activism and a, an assertion of the UK government in Scotland and Wales. Yeah, indeed. Um, Kieran, to come back to you on, on, on this issue, actually. So, I mean, looking back to 2014, um, the Unionist parties made their famous vow, as it was called, um, to Scotland before the referendum, promising more powers and, and so on. Um, I understand you've just been speaking before this event with, with Michael Gove about the UK government's plans. Um, what, what do you think they're going to do? Is there, is there an equivalent counter offer that the UK government could make, is potentially going to make, to try and draw some voters, maybe in that middle middle Scotland group, away from the SNP and away from yes. Well, there will be no kind of neat offer presented in a bow as there was in 2014. You know, the vow was uh, was an excellent publicity stunt towards the end of the campaign. But what the what the UK government is looking at now, and what Michael Gove was quite clear about on that huddle that has just happened with Scottish journalists was that it's all about, as he put it, as Boris Johnson put it in the letter to the, the First Ministers uh, on Saturday night, was that it's all about a Team UK approach, about collaborative working, working together and becoming involved uh, in areas that, as Tony was saying, have, have been devolved and people have been used to being entirely the responsibility of the, the Scottish or Welsh parliaments over the last 20-odd uh, years. Um, this includes potentially investing in, in Scottish healthcare, which could prove incredibly controversial. Equally, the, what the UK government hopes is that rather than end up in a kind of constitutional steerhead ramy, as you might say up here, that what people will be what people will be care more about is the outcomes, and that if cancer waiting times disappear quickly, then they don't really care if that went round the devolved settlement, if they have a, a, a faster rail network, they don't really care that that is um, nominally the responsibility of Holyrood and money came from Whitehall. I mean, the week that we are looking at potentially being able to hug our families for the 
uh, first time in more than a year, the UK government is really about to try and wrap its arms around Scotland, hold it tight and slip 20 quid in the jacket pocket at the same time. <laughs> yes, well, it is, it, it is quite a, uh, a departure from how devolution has worked for, for 20, 22 years for UK government to be thinking of, of funding the Scottish NHS directly. Very, very um, unusual times we, we live in. OK, I want to come to, to Wales now. Uh, we have had a number of questions, I know, um, on Scotland, and we'll bring some of those in later. But, um, Laura, you've been sitting patiently uh, waiting uh, for this moment. So, um, Welsh election. I mean, I saw you on, on TV over the weekend um, talking about the election, and, and one line that you used that caught my attention was that, as I think you put it, this has been the first proper Welsh general election, if I hope I'm not misquoting you. Um, can you explain what you meant by that? Uh, yes, yes, I can. I mean, I probably laid that a little bit too thickly looking back because every election since 1999 and devolution has been distinctively Welsh. Um, so I don't want to, you know, I don't want to give the wrong impression here. But this was an election where Welsh voters made decisions based on the performance of the Welsh government and the performance of the political parties in Wales. So I was, it was a slightly more nuanced point, really, that England and Wales trends did not play out in this Welsh general election. And what I mean by that was um, this was a ringing endorsement of the Welsh Labour government, who, of course, as, as you know, has, has been in power in Wales since the very beginning of devolution, so 22 years, admittedly sometimes with another party alongside it in government, the Lib Dems or Plaid Cymru. But actually, this goes back much deeper. You know, Labour hasn't lost a general election in terms of vote share or seats won in Wales for over a century. Um, so that gives you some perspective on how entrenched Welsh Labour is. And a couple of things happened in this election which are significant. Um, first of all, the visibility and awareness of the First Minister gave Welsh Labour a fantastic platform, which they duly exploited. Um, not only was Mark Drakeford incredibly well known and recognised across the nation, largely, as, as Kieran said, in the same way that Nicola Sturgeon had in front of that podium talking about COVID. Not just that, but his approval ratings on the handling of COVID and the pandemic were much, much higher consistently throughout the whole pandemic. So, you know, he, he had approval ratings in the, in the 60s, whilst Boris Johnson, the interpretation from Welsh people of Boris Johnson's handling of the pandemic for England was much, much lower in the 30s. So, so it gave Mark Drakeford a wonderful platform. Um, he played that to his advantage. Um, being a, a, a better known first minister than any that went before him um, in the right context played well. Uh, Mark Drakeford's a very authentic character, I think is a, is a good way of describing it. He, he's got no airs and graces and doesn't pretend to be what he isn't. Um, and of course, the opposition parties had already planned their strategies for a period before COVID. And then they were caught, to be fair, I mean, I'm not sure what else they could have done, but they were caught completely on the hop because they weren't able to adjust their strategies then, bearing in mind it was a, a COVID election. So hence we see, you know, a, a, an incredibly impressive result for Welsh Labour winning 30 seats, which not many of us predicted. Some of us thought it might be in the high 20s, you know, up one from last time. That's quite some achievement. Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, there were some polls that had them losing a few seats, um, dropping down to sort of low 20s. There was talk of this potentially being a breakthrough year for, for Plaid Cymru. Um, so I want to come on to, to, to that, actually. Um, I mean, we've talked, of course, a lot about Scottish independence, the constitutional question in the context of the Scottish um, election campaign. How did it play in, in Wales? I mean, Adam Price, as, as, as leader of Plaid, put independence to, to a greater extent, I think, than maybe previous leaders have done at the centre of Plaid's plans for Wales. Um, but obviously they've ended up relatively underperforming expectations. Um, was that because of their position on, on independence? Or, I mean, you've been talking about other reasons why Labour yeah. did Well, it's a little bit more complex than that, Akash, in that you're right, Plaid Cymru and Adam Price did try and put independence front and centre of the Plaid campaign. The problem with that was this wasn't an independence campaign more generally. And... It, certainly for the vast majority of Welsh voters, 
independence wasn't the issue upon which they made their decision uh, in the ballot box. Um, the, I nuanced that a little bit by saying it was very difficult for Plaid Cymru to fight the election on any other basis because clearly Labour had been in power here, the Conservatives had been in power at UK level, so the Welsh Conservatives were able to draw on some of the uh, how, as they termed it, successes of UK government programmes like the furlough scheme, like the vaccination programme. Plaid didn't have that. I mean, you know, this is where the, the differences lie between Plaid and the SNP. I mean, you know, Plaid is not the SNP and never has been. That's the first thing you have to say. And secondly, Wales is not Scotland and, and never has been. And, you know, when you try and um, when you try and correlate what happens in the two nations, you, I think it's very easy to trip yourself up on constitutional and public policy issues. However, having said all of that, whilst this wasn't uh, an independence election, um, it's interesting to look at the composition of the Senev now and you, straight away you can draw all kinds of conclusions, but straight away you can see that there is a healthy majority there for more powers for Wales. Um, however, I mean, Devo Max feels kind of old hat now, doesn't it, as a term, but, but certainly for additional powers, what Mark Drakeford has, has He's fluctuated between calling it home rule, proper home rule, and then, on the other hand, radical federalism. And I think the two things are actually quite different. But, you know, you can see, if you look at the, the Senate, there's a, there's a majority in favour of more powers. That's significant. Um, the other thing that's happened is that the kind of anti-establishment populist right has been completely annihilated. Um, we have a similar electoral system to Scotland, but again, not the same. Scotland's is more proportional than Wales is because of the balance between the regional lists and the first-past-the-post constituencies. Um, and what, what happened last time was that the context of the election, you know, a, a couple of weeks before the EU referendum, allowed an in for UKIP, and they duly capitalised on that and had seven uh, MSs or AMs as they were, um, UKIP clearly were nowhere in this election, but some of the polls were predicting that the kind of similar anti-establishment uh, and uh, abolish the Welsh Assembly party might get a foothold. And, and all parties were annihilated, all of the parties of the populist right. In fact, the Greens did better than abolish the Assembly and UKIP, and they didn't do very well. So that gives you a flavour of um, of where the parties are. But, but just one thing about Plaid Cymru, Akash, because I've kind of gone around the houses here. Um, this, was, this was a really poor performance by Plaid Cymru. Um, not only did they their vote plateau, they lost the Ronda held by their previous leader, Leanne Wood. And in some respects, you know, that was that was always going to go when you saw what was what was happening with Welsh Labour. But even in other seats where they, they'd run the um the incumbents very close, like Llanethi and like Aberconnoy in the north, um, they were way, way behind. And and they picked up, you know, a quite a few second places, but, you know, a long way behind Welsh Labour. And quite frankly, it's hard to see whether 2026 could be much better for Plaid unless they have a really fundamental root and branch overview of where they're going. Mm. Yeah. And I mean, you talked about there being that clear majority, as you say, for, for further devolution. So the Conservatives, the Welsh Conservatives stood on a uh, manifesto saying no new powers let's just get on with using the powers we've got but yeah Labour and Plaid obviously and there's one Liberal Democrat are all in favour of, of, of further devolution um, or indeed um, federalism or, or something more more dramatic like that so how do you see that playing out that kind of alliance between those parties because Labour has 30 out of 60 as we've said seats so presumably it won't need to work in a formal way with the other parties. Or, or do you think Mark Drakeford might nonetheless reach out to, well, the one Liberal Democrat or maybe even Plaid? Uh, no, I don't think so, um, for a couple of reasons. Um, firstly, there's no necessity to do that. Um, secondly, the, the, the Lib Dems clung on to representation by the skin of their teeth, you know, a couple of hundred votes um, in Mid and West Wales, and they would have lost that or not had that regional seat. Um, so there's an issue about legitimacy and so on. And and I just don't think that would go down terribly well amongst the Labour group in the Senate should Mark Drakeford reach out to the Lib Dems. And, and Plaid Cymru is pretty bruised. Having said all of that, that doesn't mean that Mark Drakeford won't adopt a pretty collegial approach in his operation of the Welsh Government. That's his style anyway. 
Um, he's got a good relationship with um, uh, the leader of the Lib Dems and the leader of Pike Cymru. So I think on a case by case basis and and indeed, if there is a more uh, granular debate about how we pursue the next steps in Welsh devolution, then I think Mark Drakeford, Adam Price and Jane Dodds, the Welsh Lib Dem leader, will be working very closely together. But, but I certainly don't expect to see um, cabinet ministers uh, come in from any party other than the Welsh Labour Party. Okay, great. Thanks very much. And yeah, I mean, Labour's manifesto, I see also included a specific proposal for a independent standing commission on the constitutional future of Wales. So I guess that kind of initiative, if it happens, yeah, that, might provide for some cross-party... Uh, that's, that's, yeah, sorry, sorry, Akash, that's a really important one, because when we talk about the constitution in Wales, we're talking about our constitution as well, not just the, the UK yeah. uh, relationship. And, and what, what these figures... Uh, have given is a two-thirds majority, the supermajority that you need for constitutional change in Wales around things like increasing the size of the Senate, which is massively underpowered and under-resourced currently, changing the electoral system. Um, and, you know, whilst it would be fair to say, why would Labour pursue that agenda now? Because, you know, it's it's an unpopular agenda with the public. But in, in many respects, when, when a party's on a high, as Labour is, and at the beginning of a new term, it's not a bad time, actually, to start looking at things that you know need to be remedied. So I would be very surprised if there isn't more traction around that issue of the um, expansion of the Senate to 90 members and changing the electoral system to STV. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Be interesting to watch that one. OK. One quick question for Jess and then we're going to turn to, to England. So we've talked in both the Scottish and Welsh context about coronavirus and the, the performance perceived strong performance of the incumbent governments there um, and how they're rated more highly than than is the UK government and Boris Johnson. So you followed this quite closely uh, for, from the IFG perspective. What do you think they've got right then, um, Nicola Sturgeon and, and Mark Drakeford, such that they do have those higher approval ratings on this issue? Yeah, I think the, the main difference is they've been perceived as more kind of competent and in control, um, both Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford, than perhaps um, Boris Johnson. Um, if you actually look at the differences in the coronavirus restrictions in place in each part of the UK, whilst there are minor differences, both in terms of what the rules are um, and at kind of what pace they, they have been eased, there aren't huge differences. I mean, very broadly speaking, Scotland and Wales have been a bit more cautious. They've moved a bit slower um, and that has been perceived much more positively. Um, but in terms of what differences those decisions have made from the actual outcomes, I think it's actually far too early to tell. So I think more than anything, it is just that clear communication, that perception of, of being in control. And actually, we've heard Mark Drakeford at various points being quite critical of the UK government and perhaps what he's seen as them kind of jumping the gun in some areas. Obviously, the Conservative Party, one of their key points at the election was the success of both the, the vaccine rollout and the furlough scheme. It looks like that might have been a successful strategy in England, but certainly in Scotland and Wales, it doesn't really seem that they're getting that much credit, um, much to, I imagine, the UK government's frustration. Um, so I think a, a lot of it does come back to the question of who you want to be governed by, as well as your kind of constitutional preference. OK, great. Thanks. Um, OK, yes. Yeah, so turning to um, England now, um, and I'd like to start and, and mainly focus on the, the big mayoral elections in, in London, Greater Manchester, other city regions across across the country. Um, so, Tony, turnout was up compared to, to last time, in, I think, in, in probably all of them. Uh, most of the incumbents um, did pretty well, um, including both Conservatives and Labour metro mayors. So do you read that and, and the results as, as an endorsement from voters of the male model and of the idea of, of devolution within England? I think so. I mean, you're right. In fact, two, two of the uh, mayoralties did change hands. Labour won uh, both the west of England around Bristol and Cambridge and Peterborough, uh, further reinforcing an England-wide phenomenon that the Conservatives generally did better the further north you went and Labour better the further south you came. I mean, it's a massive historical tectonic plate type shifting, um, political tectonic plate type shifting result. Uh, 
And the turnout in London was 42%, which, you know, compared with the Welsh Parliament turnout of 47%, uh, not bad, really. Um, West Yorkshire, uh, Tracy Braben won that for the first time, 37%. That's a new mayoralty. So I think there's, there's evidence that people are taking to these uh, ideas of city regional mayors in England. And we have some pre-election research showing spectacularly high name recognition for Andy Burnham and Sadiq Khan, for example, 80, over 80 percent. Um, so is this good for devolution? Well, clearly it ought to be. Uh, and indeed, uh, Andy Burnham, after his uh, spectacular win in Greater Manchester on Saturday, uh, made the point that he wanted more powers immediately. And, uh, we, you know, we've heard from other mayors the same kind of views. The I think the challenge, though, is that Parliament, and if you look at what we were talking earlier um, with Kieran about, uh, you know, spending money in Scotland, that in some ways the government is going through a phase of spending more money centrally on all parts of the country, the north of England, the Midlands, Scotland, which is kind of county, counter devolutionary. And yet uh, most of the elected mayor, or I think all of them believe you can't have any improvement to regional productivity without substantial devolution of the kind that's happened in Scotland and Wales. So, uh, it, you know, it, it's uh, all in progress, work in progress, I think. Yes, and um, I mean the, the the UK government has for some time, or had for some time, promised um, a big white paper on on further devolution. There was a manifesto commitment in 2019 to, um, I think, what they called full devolution across England. Those plans have been delayed. Now apparently that's going to be a levelling up white paper rather than a devolution white paper. Um, are, are they just not really interested in um, in devolution anymore as an idea? Um, what what are you expecting from from the government in this domain? I mean, it, it's true that since George Osborne's departure from government, there hasn't really been a champion in Whitehall of devolution within England. The champions are now the mayors themselves. Uh, Andy Burnham, perhaps in particular. It'll be interesting to see how Tracy Braben. Uh, plays this from Leeds, West Yorkshire. Uh, so I think that as we look forward, um, I mean, levelling up is now, of course, going to be partly influenced by Neil O'Brien, who worked with um, George Osborne at the Treasury, and is clearly somebody who's thought through a, a lot about this. But there is a difference between levelling up and devolution. And as I say, Andy Burnham and others believe you can't deliver levelling up unless there is more devolution. Question, is now a time, given what we were saying about Wales a, a moment ago and, and looking at the system of, of government within Wales, whether an England-wide plus Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland UK-wide look at devolution might now be in order in order to try to come up with an English balance to devolution in Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland and thus a more broad constitutional reform. Final thoughts on this, England, you know, uh, somehow uh, parts of England are left out of this and, and I think in the end if it's to be a union it has to work for England as well as for Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. Yes, so this actually um, links to, to one of the questions I was, I was going to bring in. Um, so, well, Gordon Brown has been mentioned already in this discussion, and he, of course, is advising or involved in Keir Starmer's planned uh, constitutional commission or commission on the future of the UK, which, as far as what we know from, from, from limited information in the public domain, that is going to look UK-wide. It's involving the mayors in England, as well as looking at Scotland and Wales, not so sure how Northern Ireland um, fits in. Um, so, I mean, what do you think of, of Labour's position? And, and I'll link this to a question from the audience, someone who is um, anonymous, which is, um, to what extent... To the results, or well, maybe we've touched upon this part of it, make the case for more devolution. But should Labour commit to a much more radical levelling up in England than the government in order to regain votes in so-called left-behind areas? So, yes, basically, what, what do you make of Labour's positioning and is there an opportunity for them there to, to, to do something different from the government? Well, I'm not sure. I mean, 
everybody can be more in favour of levelling up than everybody else. I mean, it's delivering it and within a reasonable time that's more challenging, I think. And by the way, we don't know what the impact of COVID and Brexit will have been on the UK economy yet. Uh, it will have had profound impacts, I suspect. And we're not absolutely certain, I suspect, whether levelling up will be from the right places to the right places, but we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, so I think that looking ahead, um, something will have to be done in England. Um, and that does a big a further question of whether you then have to have a full reorganisation of local government in England to make, which itself is quite a challenge, in order to allow a full universal transfer of power to English combined authorities, not just to favoured cities. So, um, as I say, I think levelling, and the other point I'd make is that I do think that as regional politics changes it's hard not to see there being an argument for political parties thinking about having more devolved structures for their parties within the UK in the way that is true in Scotland and Wales I think the Conservatives and Labour would probably benefit from a separate London and uh, operation and it may well be that this is true for other parts of the country as well so I think the parties themselves need to think about devolving themselves Yes, well, I think the, the dynamics within Labour, the Labour Party in particular, are quite interesting. The, the balance of power is really shifting uh, from the central leadership to um, some of the some of the big mayors. Yes, Laura, would you like to come in? Yeah, on I want this? you to come in. I want you to come in on Tony's point about the structure of the parties because nowhere is that more evident than Wales. You know, we we it, it seems incredible to me, literally incredible, that we have the most successful party machine in Wales in Welsh Labour. We have the most powerful national politician in uh, Welsh Labour, in Mark Drakeford, and yet there's been very, very little attention paid by the UK Labour Party to the record of success in Wales. And that tells you a lot about metropolitan attitudes to Wales, first and foremost. But it also tells you about missed opportunities for, for Keir Starmer and his approach to managing the party. And, and I think Tony makes a good point. I, c I can see if I was uh, involved in the Welsh Labour Party, I would be pushing for a completely independent structure to Welsh Labour now because they've proved themselves to be not just a successful electoral machine, but a successful government over the past 14 months as well. And it, se it seems to me that, that if you look at the breakdown of, of votes across Wales, they were picking up votes in the urban cities in a way that the uh, English Labour Party does. But they were also picking up votes amongst people with the lowest educational qualifications in the valleys, in rural areas and in the areas closest to England. And that tells you that Welsh Labour is getting quite a few things right, that clearly the Labour Party isn't in Scotland and it isn't in England. Yes, indeed. And um, I mean, on the as we're talking about Labour, uh, Kieran, I just wondered if you had any observations on um, Scottish Labour's performance. So Anasawa, relatively new leader, Labour's on about its 10th leader or so in, in, in 20 years, was seen to have perhaps had quite a decent campaign, um, but obviously Labour didn't really make a, a, a big breakthrough. Um, how do you feel that they fared? And um, what well, well, no one can suggest that Scottish Labour has been a formidable campaigning machine over the past decade or so. Um, and and Asawar came in, he came in w working from a very difficult place. The party was in the doldrums in the polls. It was really struggling. The, the discussion was not whether they could usurp the Scottish Conservatives and finish second, but whether they would be caught by the Scottish Greens and end up fourth in, in Holyrood when, when Anasawa took over. And he did have a, a pretty good personal campaign. He came across well in the television debates. He, his personal ratings um, went through the roof. Uh, he, he managed to not exactly get close to Nicola Sturgeon in terms of popularity, but he was clearly the second most popular political leader in Scotland. The problem that Anasarwar had, has, and still facing Labour now, and it has been facing Labour since the 2014 independence referendum, is what is its position on the constitution? Who are its core voters? We know who the SNP's core voters are. They, they are independent supporters. We know who the Scottish Conservatives' core voters are. And Douglas Ross, for all the criticism he got during the campaign, ran a really effective campaign 
campaign of knowing whose voters were, getting them out and making sure they voted for his party. The same can't be said of an Sarwar or Scottish Labour, um, even when you, you, know, you take into account he wasn't very long into the job and all of the other, uh, I say excuses, that's a bit too harsh perhaps, but you know, all the other reasons that, that you could use for the lack of strategy, but it's still a problem. And, and without resolving that question, there's no quick fix for Labour in Scotland. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long-term decline there. Okay, um, a few other questions then from the audience. Uh, thank you to all those who have submitted. Um, so, Laura, a couple on the, uh, on the Welsh election that, that, that I would be interested in your take on. So, first one is, I'll, I'll put two to you um, at the same time, if that's okay. So, the first one is from Nigel Morgans, um, which, was, which is, uh, what was the impact of lowering the voting age to 16 in the Senate election? Did any particular party benefit? Um, which is an interesting one. And then there is um, an anonymous question, which is, uh, does the political composition of the Senate, you've sort of touched upon this before, now make an increase in the size of, of the Senate inevitable? So there's been recommendations going back uh, over 15 years, I think, to increase the size of the Senate or the Assembly, as then was, from 60. Is that now finally going to happen? Okay, so the first one, um, 16 and 17 year olds, um, it's probably a little bit too early to assess um, the impact of that. I suspect the impact would be relatively low for a couple of reasons. There's only 71,000 16 and 17 year olds across Wales. They're spread evenly across Wales. They're not concentrated in any one area. And we know that probably only about a half of those registered to vote in this uh, Senate election. I have to say, this is probably not the moment to judge the um, efficacy of the decision or the relevance of the decision because when my, the expert panel that I, that I chaired worked on this um, proposal we'd aligned the recommendation for votes at 16 with a program of, of a quite robust program of citizenship training political education work with schools and of course none of that has been possible or very little of it has been, has been possible because of covid so in fairness i think this would be inappropriate to judge um you know whether there's an appetite amongst young people to vote in this election alone i think it'll change dramatically by the time of the next uh, 2026 election so so that's the point none of the part interestingly with the exception of plaid cymru none of the parties tried to appeal directly to young voters um i know we all know that young voters tend to favour the parties of the left and the centre-left, but, but only Plaid Cymru did anything explicit, either social media or otherwise, to appeal to young voters. Um, you know, when we've got more evidence from the Welsh election uh, study, we'll, we'll be able to assess whether there was any real impact uh, on that. And the, the point about um, the size of the Senev, uh, Akash, as you say, I've already talked a bit about that, but, you know, one, one thing I will say is that, you know, Mark Drakeford as First Minister is very cognizant of the problems that the Senate faces uh, with regard to effective scrutiny. So if you just drill down into the single issue, the single reason for me why the Senate is not big enough is because there aren't enough effective backbenchers to be able to scrutinise government uh, policy, government spend and so on. Um, you know, you're talking about at, at times, you know, not much more than 40 odd politicians, which, you know, anyone knows you need you need critical mass to be able to scrutinise effectively. So. I think it would be brave of Welsh Labour to want to address this now, but there is enough support amongst backbenchers and some of the new Labour MSs who've been elected to at least make this a potential live issue. I don't think we can say more than that at the moment. Yeah, sure. And that obviously then gets into tricky questions about electoral system, which exactly. um, that's probably one for another another event, but that's another one to watch for sure. Okay, Tony, a question or actually a couple of uh, related questions on the on the London election, actually, which we haven't talked about so much. Um, so, first of all, um, these are both from anonymous people. Um, can we draw? This is a more, sort of general question, I suppose. Can we draw any insights from the London elections, in particular, the closer than expected mayoral election? I mean, I think that's interesting. It was closer, a bit closer than expected. Why might that be? Um, and but then also. Um, what about this very high number of spoiled ballots? Um, uh, and there was a second question also on that point, um, which just notes that 
around 87,000 votes were thrown out because people marked two crosses in the first preference column. Um, so what does that tell us? Does it tell us the electoral systems maybe not working or I suppose what could be done to prevent that happening again? Well, just to take them in order, uh, it was a little closer than expected. I think Sean Bailey in some ways, or both candidates arguably suffered from polls showing such a wide gap between them that both major parties didn't really make much of an effort in London to support their candidates. Um, so there were lots of people, you know, canvassing in the West Midlands from London, I detect, uh, you know, because that was seen as, and indeed was, a much narrower race. So um, I think what that tells us is that the game isn't up for the Conservatives in London. It looked, ever since the mid-1990s, London's been shifting leftwards absolutely clearly and is now, it's the home after all, of a quarter of all Labour MPs. I mean, think about it, a quarter of all the Labour Party's parliamentary party are London MPs, including their leader. Now, so I think from the Conservatives' point of view, this suggests it's worth fighting in London and worth trying to win their power base back, which they've rather been giving away for the last 25 or 30 years. And so I'd expect a bit more attention. The trouble with this is, by the time you've got the Conservatives having to spend a bit more time and effort on London and redistributing resources to the Midlands and the North and Scotland and Wales and doubtless Northern Ireland, you know, the, the magic money forest is going to have to be heavily productive for everybody to get extra money, except the South East, it would appear. Anyway, so uh, there is all of that then on the on this the number of people voting twice now i don't know why that happened it's clearly true it's eighty-seven thousand compared with uh, eight, over eighty thousand compared with 30 odd thousand last time 20 odd thousand the time before it's hard not to imagine it has something to do with having 20 names on the ballot paper uh on a single sheet of a4 um, and that is by some distance the largest, largest number, including a number of YouTubers and what might you know, be called novelty <laughs> candidates. So it's hard not to believe that it's something to do with the number of um, names on one piece of A4. But, and that has to be on one piece of A4 because of the counting machines. So um, that will have to be inquired. There'll have to be an inquiry, I think, and there will be one by the London Assembly to look at that. Okay. Oh, that's good to hear that they will be looking at it. Because well, they, they look at the election. They did last time. I'm sure they will this time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I saw some discussion about this and suggestion that I found quite persuasive was that the way that because of the number of candidates, as you say, you had two lists of candidates side by side. Yep. Um, and then alongside each list, you had tick first preference, tick second preference, and then you had all the ones from like yeah. S to Z or whatever. And again, first and second. And a lot of people presumably picked one from this side and one from this side. And they were both first preferences. So the thing gets thrown out, which is, yeah, obviously. Yeah, and not. I mean, the number of, I think the number of names and the layout of the, I mean, we know there's academic research. Laura will know this. Um, indeed, Jess about your where the alphabet works in terms of the way people vote for you names which have different ethnic implications and so on they all have an effect mm. on on voting so why shouldn't the layout of the document but i mean another thing if it's you know we're going to see 20 or more candidates in races of this kind and perhaps more of that uh, as it becomes easier to crowdsource money to you know to put down a deposit I think what this is going to have to be considered, and it may not only be in London that the layout of the ballot paper gets uh, longer and more complicated. Yeah, yeah. I've seen photos from, I think it was the Dutch elections, where they have sort of not <laughs> multiple reams of paper with long lists of, uh, of candidates for, 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 from all the parties. So it's worth adding, of course. So we don't go down that route. But, um, but yes. The government committed to going back to first past the post, remember, for these mayoral yeah. elections. So I think this may be the last time we have the two-vote system. And That's question, true. will that apply to uh, the London Assembly as well? Not sure yet. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Okay, yeah, we'll move on from electoral systems. Obviously, if we had first past the post in um, Wales or Scotland, it would have been <laughs> even more landslide victories for the parties, main parties there. Jess, want to come to you. We've had a question on another topic, um, namely relations 
with the EU. So um, you work as part of our Brexit team as well. Um, how much was, well, was Brexit much of an issue in the elections and what might be the impact of these elections on relations with the EU, do you think? Yeah, I think there's still a kind of lingering Brexit effect in England. I think certainly in the Hartlepool by-election, we saw a lot of the Brexit party vote um, from 2019, which has now evaporated to kind of go to the Conservative Party. And equally, we've seen Brexit um, is a key driver of support for Scottish independence. So it's likely that, again, kind of uh, that has... Uh, contributed to the SNP's victory in, the, in this particular election. Um, in terms of relationship with the EU, it's a really interesting one because international relations and EU matters are technically reserved for um, the UK Parliament, but all the devolved administrations have a presence in Brussels and actually both the SNP and Welsh Labour, um, who've now been elected, are both committed to bolstering um, that presence in, in Brussels. So I think it's an interesting one that the EU will be watching closely. Obviously, we know if Scotland um, became independent, the SNP's plan is for it to rejoin the EU. Um, so there's obviously a strong interest there. The EU will probably be very careful about how it plays this. It doesn't want to be seen to be getting involved in the UK's internal constitutional debates. But equally, we know there are a lot of uh, people in Brussels and a lot of MEPs that would welcome an independent Scotland uh, kind of rejoining um, after the majority agreement we saw all the MEPs sing old lang syne um, but I think there will be a wariness of, of, of getting too involved and equally you know some concern from member states that might have uh, their own kind of succession movements but certainly the EU will be watching closely and I think we will see um, relationships between the Welsh and Scottish governments and the EU being nurtured over this next period. Yeah, thank, thanks very much. Yeah, another interesting one to watch. Okay, so I am conscious of the time ticking towards um, two o'clock. Um, if we've got time, Kieran, I'm just going to put one final question to you, um, which was, which is from Hugh Rawlings, um, who, a former senior civil servant from the Welsh government. Hope he doesn't mind me saying that in um, in, in in this forum. Um, so he refers to the fact that, um, as Tony has said, um, UK government is planning to spend or probably is going to be spending a lot more money in Scotland and maybe in Wales. But do you think that the Conservative Party already committed to spending more in the north of England, through levelling up agenda and so on, is going to look enthusiastically on spending more um, on top of Barnet formula consequentials? I, Scotland, <laughs> Scotland already does pretty well out of public spending and the Barnet formula. Um, and that's sometimes a cause of uh, controversy in England, English Conservatives and so on. How are they going to square that circle, I guess? Well, there's a really interesting article over the weekend, actually, by Luke Graham, who was the former Scottish Conservative MP and after that was had a period in charge of Downing Street's union unit. And he wrote in the Sunday Times that the UK government should look at the direct investment in the north of England and the way that the the red wall has turned blue, as it were, as a model for how for for how conservatism can flourish in places where it traditionally has not had a happy home. And the early signs from the UK government, from what we've heard from Michael Gove today, the tone of Boris Johnson's letter over the weekend is that they are absolutely thinking about doing that and, if, and effectively the union you know the union is worth the extra money and the the potential criticism that may come from that for for putting more money directly into scotland and also yes. sorry just to, just to add on that point michael gove was asked about the barnet formula at the at the huddle I was on just before this, and he said that he absolutely wanted to keep that intact. So it appears that there's no question of the Barnet formula being changed to allow this direct investment into uh, Scotland and or Wales and Northern Ireland. Yeah, well, that's certainly, an, well, yet another area that we at the IFG are going to be watching, because I think there is an interesting question, definitely no time to talk about it now, but if the UK government spends more directly in the devolved nations, the Barnet formula can remain intact, but actually less money over time will go to the devolved administrations because it will be direct UK spending. 
So to get technical about it, it won't incur bionic consequentials. Anyway, we shall, <laughs> we shall see how all of that plays out. Okay, so we are now at, um, at 2 p.m. So I wanted to say, first of all, many thanks to um, all four of you on the panel. Really, really fascinating discussion. Thanks for taking the time um, to join us. And um, thank you also to everyone who contributed questions and anyone who's just tuned in. hope you found this as interesting as I have. Um, for lots more elections analysis and commentary from us at the IFG, please do check out our website and follow us on Twitter and so on. Um, our next devolution event is going to be a uh, discussion with Minister for the Constitution and Devolution in the UK government, Chloe Smith, which will take place on Wednesday the 16th of June. So watch this space for more information. And until next time, that's all. So goodbye and thanks again for joining us. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.